Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. And I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where LGBTQIA people proudly share their stories. We're excited to launch Proud Out Loud, which is a limited Pride Month series brought to you by the team at Talk Out Loud in partnership with Tybar. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're joined by producer, actor, and activist, Justin Makita. Since childhood, Justin had a love for performing that would lead him to getting accepted into UCLA's theater program. That experience didn't go as planned, which led him to switching majors and work to become a lawyer. While studying, he would meet his husband-to-be, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Their work would parallel one another as Jesse changed hearts and minds playing a gay man on ABC's hit show, Modern Family, and Justin worked diligently on the legal front to help overturn California's controversial Prop 8 and achieve marriage equality across the country. Today, because of their and countless others' work, they get to celebrate their first Father's Day this week with their son, Beckett, that they welcomed during the pandemic. Let's hear Justin's story. Everyone, we have a special treat today. Justin Nikita is here with us. Justin has done just some amazing things in the world. And today we're going to learn about how he got to where he's at and just some of the wonderful things he's doing and why he does some of the things that he does. So uh, welcome, Justin. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, so we're here in LA virtually, the three of us, connected through technology of sorts. You know, I was doing a little bit of uh, getting to know you before our conversation today, and, and you grew up not too far from here, right? Yeah, I grew up in Simi Valley, California, which is about, you know, 35, 40 minutes north of Los Angeles. Uh, what, um, did you have any siblings at all or what was family yeah, like? Yeah, I had um, three siblings. So there were four of us. I was the, the baby by 10 years. So my mom calls me a surprise and I call me an accident. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. And my, I'm the only one that got this far away, which is obviously not that far, but my siblings all live within a mile radius of the house that I grew up in. So they're all still close to home. Oh, nice. As far as like when you, when you were younger and your siblings and stuff, did you all have like an understanding of like what you were going to do when you, when you grew up? Was there like a narrative like in the family, like this is what we do or anything like that? I just had um, a real sense that I was completely different than my all the men in my family specifically. Like I was my, all of the men in my family are such like physical labor, hardworking guys who like go to work at 4am and have to like (laughs) really do physical stuff. And I just was like, I don't know how I will survive in this world. Like I cannot, that's not going to be me. I have to wear a tie. I have to wear a suit. I have to wear a bow tie. I have to do something different. And so I just had a real deep sense that like everything that they were doing, I had to find an alternate because I just wasn't going to be good at it. Mm. And so for me, obviously growing up, theater was my outlet. Like I, I was in community theater from 10 years old on and I found a theater group in Simi Valley and then also was doing theater in school. And so I think like the moment that started for me, it was, it ignited my love for musical theater specifically and then my dream to be on Broadway or around Broadway in some way, which, I mean, is so wild to look back on because I now produce shows on Broadway and 
it just is full circle in like a really incredible way because, you know, when I went to college and I suppose we can talk about this later, but like, you know, I sort of stepped away from the idea of theater as a career because I wanted to have security and to have found my way back is really cool. And I'm really proud of that. That's probably one of the coolest things that I've achieved is the idea that I stepped away from something knowing that I would no longer seek it. And then it sort of found its way back hmm. in some way, which was really, really beautiful. I'm curious. That's really interesting. I'm curious. And I think it's relatable to a lot of people too, what you just said about the desire for security. What was it that you're, that you were hearing? What was it that you were telling yourself that would provide security for you? Well, a job, like, you know, a, a job that paid a check, a job that was scheduled biweekly, <laughs> um, uh, you know, that, that like the, the sort of, I just wasn't ready to struggle and like look for, for small jobs to work in entertainment in a way that so many people do. And still like I'm surrounded by people who are struggling actors and performers and they're incredibly strong and dedicated to their craft. And then they have victories and then in between victories, lots of lulls. And, you know, it's, it's a really challenging career. It's, it's really wild. And so I just thought, you know, once I started understanding that nothing was guaranteed in performing, mm -hmm. then I thought, okay, let's find an alternate that sort of surrounds the world but still allows for me to have that security. Did you ever feel uh, any sort of pressure from your family to like go get a real job kind of thing? <laughs> my, my family was always super supportive. I'm, mm. I'm really lucky to say that in all aspects. I mean, in work, in career, in coming out, you know, my, my parents, it wasn't without its its complications, but it, but it was always with love and generosity of spirit. And they were always willing to change their perspectives in order to accommodate and enforce love upon me, you know? And so I hmm. really felt that at all ages, even when I was young and was desperate to be on Broadway. My father probably was the least excited about that. You know, my mom was so like, if this is what he wants to do, let's do it. She put me yeah. in dance class. She put me in acting classes. She would, we, I used to buy Backstage West and submit myself to like casting calls. I mean, like I did the whole thing. It was, you know, I, it was a whole process. And I think for any parent, they just want you to be successful and be able to, to provide for yourself, I think. And then also hopefully parents want you to love what you do and follow your dreams. And so for me, it was like a huge dream. And so they were very supportive. Yeah. You know, like my sister had a baby uh, almost two years ago, so he's going to turn to it uh, pretty soon. And he loves music. He loves to dance. He loves to, he has a play drum set. He has, you know, instruments. And, you know, she was talking about putting them in like sports camps and like all of these things. And I'm like, that's great if you're going to do that. But, you definitely need to put him in like some kind of like early musical education class so that he has that outlet. Cause there's something that changes in his face. Like his whole face lights up differently. And I, and I think sometimes, you know, as parents, like just even looking back at like myself growing up, just some of the things like we did were sort of like mechanical, but it's like, if you take the time to 
to get to know your child and understand what it is that really sparks their interests and feed that and nurture that. There's just more times you hear stories like this where when parents have done that, that child flourishes and really embraces, you know, their true self and what they're really meant to be and what they're really supposed to be doing. So it's wonderful to hear, you know, your parents were, well, your mom for sure was really like, yeah. you know, supportive of that. So for sure. My, my dad came around to it, but my dad was also of the perspective of like, I want my son to do boy things. And so he yeah. would, you know, and, and, and I, of course, now in retrospect, we we joke a lot about it because I he for example forced me to do karate. He was really worried about me having the skill set to protect myself, mm. and I was miserable. Of course, yeah. now as a grown man, I would love to have succeeded at karate. I wish, like, I would even go take a karate class with friends. You know, it sounds really fun, but as a kid, when you're being forced to do something that you are adamantly opposed to it just doesn't work yeah. you're not yeah. you're not going to succeed at it i was miserable i like you know I, I vividly remember that one of the days where it all fell apart and my mother was in the in between my dad and i sort of forcing me to go and my mom was like i'm really sorry but you just just go it's only an hour like it'll be fine and i was so upset like mm. screaming crying in the car that i made myself sick in the car oh. and then i immediately was not required to go to garage anymore. <laughs> so I actually had a tiny victory. Um, but That's you know, great. it's, it speaks to what you're talking about, which is, you know, and I think of the same thing with now that we have a kid and how he will likely have interests that are not like mine. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope I, I can impress on him so much that I really want him to be a musical theater kid, or I want him to go to <laughs> go do all of these things that I love doing or go to dance class. Like I would love to put him in a little tap shoes. I can't wait, but you know, what if he wants to do football? Like, yeah. what am I going to do? You know, I don't, I, I will, I will support it, but I don't know what I'm doing with it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> you yeah. just have to show up at the games and, you know, cheer when everybody else is cheering in the yeah. stands around you. <laughs> That's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Just know the verbiage, whether it's a touchdown or, you know, a field goal, like, you know, exactly. Just looking back upon it. And I, I love that we can have like a mature conversation about this, about you identified your need for security for yourself. We have these instincts, right? Like in, in, in each of us. And as we get older, we develop them. We have better emotional intelligence about them. And so I feel like with the karate, you were able like now it's like, oh, I can go approach it like in a way that would be fun. But maybe in a kid like for myself, like I had fear about like organized sports. I just didn't I just didn't have the emotional intelligence for it. But also I just would like to add a different layer to this is that with your father and your mother, right? Like they have you as a child and now you have that as it, as being experienced, a shared experience of being a father as well. Your father was looking to protect you. And I love how you talked about that, that he was trying to give you skills to protect yourself and that to understand where these instincts have, are coming from, from these parents that are trying to instill in us and then make us be self-supporting of our own, you know, being able to be there to be our own person. We, we haven't, honestly, we haven't had too many conversations with, with people from the LGBTQI community that are, that are fathers. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more. So I'm just curious, because I, I know you're an attorney. So did security look like then eventually becoming a, a lawyer? Is that, was that what that appeared for in your life? Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, I, I, I think what you said is really interesting about my dad and security and, and his intentions are pure and good. And that's why I look back on it. And we talk about, my father and I have an open dialogue about that moment, specifically karate, because it was very traumatic. And I remember it so vividly. And then also to now be in a place where there are so many things that I would have never done as a kid hmm. that now as an adult, I'm totally willing to try. 
And I think that's so interesting. You know, I, I can't say I would be good at football, but I would certainly go play it if somebody wanted to like yeah. teach me how to do it. I just don't, you know, it's, it's just so interesting. The, the security of an insecurity, I guess, mm-hmm. is what it was of being a young queer kid, not knowing you're queer in my instance, but knowing that you're different and knowing and feeling so immensely insecure that trying new things is terrifying. Trying these things that you know that you will likely not be great at is terrifying. Whereas now as an adult, like 100%, I'll go play, do karate. I will probably be terrible at it, but it will be entertaining. Yeah, <laughs> I might learn something. I'm certainly stretching a muscle in my brain that like allows for me to try new things, which I always mm-hmm. want to be doing until the day I die. So I just think it's really interesting and, you know, I don't, I'm not mad at my dad for that, that whole incident. It, it came from such a loving and caring mm-hmm. place. It's just, you know, my, my experience at that moment was so traumatic. And now in retrospect, I, I completely understand. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that fear, honestly, like that fear can be paralyzing to, to, as a, as a child, but now it's like, now nah, I don't, t- you know, I know it's okay. And I don't take myself that seriously. I can go and have a good time. And it's, it's amazing. Like since I've honestly, like for myself, gotten done a little bit of work on like internalized homophobia, I had with my own person, but the freedom I've had now of dealing with that, that has allowed me to be able to say yes to things that before I always said, nope, 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 nope. Justin, the other thing you said was always it, and I think it's important because I didn't acknowledge this a minute ago, was that you talked about like with when you decided what you were going to do for security, though, how it still matched your intention for what you wanted to do in the world. It wasn't like you just closed your eyes and spun the wheel. You did have intention in, in what you chose to do. And as we go forward with your story, we're going to see how this is all beautifully complemented one another. Yeah, so when I, so I got into UCLA for undergrad, which was a dream school of mine, and I um, auditioned for the musical theater program there, having studied for, uh, up until I was 18, you know, really intensely on on being a performer professionally. Got into the program, which was, you know, 2,000 people auditioned for 12 spots in the musical theater program at UCLA. It's a really intense sort of conservatory-like program in a, regular institution university so you get general education as well as this like conservatory training and the minute i got there i was just so sad about the, my experience and mm-hmm. you know today i i actually just had a phone call with someone who is choosing between harvard theater or ucla theater program and they wanted to talk to me about my experience and you know i i always preface it by saying please don't talk to me if you really want to go to UCLA because I don't <laughs> want to ruin your experience. And to, and, and to be honest, like everything's so different at UCLA now. And I'm sure it's wonderful. The program I'm sure is different. Um, but at the time for me, my experience there was so jarring. And it was because I felt, you know, I was coming from community theater, which is so touchy-feely, lovey, really supportive. And I I moved into, I guess, what was a taste of like reality, which is that this this industry can be very cutthroat. It can Mm. be very brutally honest. It it can have many problems as we are seeing in the media (laughs) day by day. And so there, that was something that was showing its face to me for the first time. Whereas Growing up in Simi, I was in a relatively conservative small town in suburbia, and I found my people, I found my family or chosen family for, you know, what it was. Like, they were supportive of me. They loved me for who I was. They were just lifted me up at all times. And so to go from that to a very 
stagnant, like professional atmosphere felt jarring. Once I sort of fell out of love with that idea of being a performer because of the experience I was having, I thought, well, maybe I need to be an agent or an attorney and I can work in the industry still. And, you know, everybody says, you know, I graduated college in 2007. So everybody says being a lawyer, you're guaranteed to make a good living. So I just went from musical theater to law school. It was the mm-hmm. weirdest transition. <laughs> but, you know, it was, for me, it made sense. It, it was sort of the next um, step in a journey of finding a spot within the creative business that allowed for me to find stability. You know, it's interesting sometimes, you know, like looking back on anyone's life, you're being led in one direction and you think that, you know, whatever that end goal is, that's really what the end goal is. And I would say nine times out of 10, that's not really what it is. It's just the path to get you to open your eyes to see sort of what is the next step or what is the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And it's interesting, you know, that's a jump musical theater to law, like to law school. That is, you know, I'm glad that you kind of painted that for us because that's (laughs) definitely, uh, you know, that's an interesting jump. So you obviously, so then you went to law school. So where did you land out of school then? What was the first, what was sort of your first job and, you know, what were you doing with with that law degree? So, uh, yeah, I went to law school. And then, of course, I, I went to law school during the Obama years mm-hmm. when we had that major crash um, and, and lawyer jobs were no longer easy to come, come by as they were promised. But that was okay because I, what wound up happening was I found myself in law school during Prop 8. I just was so, as I'm sure, I, I have, have you both been in California forever? Or has it been? It's been fairly recent for us. We're from Illinois, so we have a little bit of a shared experience. But if you Got want it. to talk about Prop 8 a little bit, we'd love for the listeners to, to hear your experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Prop 8 was just such a jarring thing to have happened. I, I vividly remember the night that Obama won, mm-hmm. which was, I mean, I just got chills. It, it's like, to me, one of the most incredible moments that I've ever witnessed, <laughs> juxtaposed with the night that Hillary lost, which now I'm getting weepy. <laughs> but like, it's just so funny because like, I definitely have these like bookmarks of just like trauma around politics. But the night that Barack won, Prop 8 passed in California, which was, you know, it was the first time, no, first of all, you know, I'm a cis white kid from suburban California who like very much took for granted his place and took for granted my power in, in being active as a citizen, as a voice, as a pol- as in politics. Like I never really voted in local elections when I turned 18. My parents were like sort of voters. My mom would like vote for the libertarian at the bottom of the page because she didn't like anybody. You know what I mean? Like it was just sort of that kind of household. And so I didn't have role models saying like, this is important. Mm. And, and I had to find that on my own and I found it on my own really vividly during Obama's campaign. And he just, like a lot of people really inspired me. And then, you know, after I also was so invested in Prop 8 and it Mm. was because, you know, I was finally comfortable in my skin. I was in law school. So I was learning about you know, politics in con- constitutional law. And I was hyper aware of the fact that I was going to be told I was not allowed to marry someone, mm. which was so strange to me considering I just, the from the minute I 
you know, became myself and filled my shoes and came out of the closet and did all those things, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have a normal, normal in quotes. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a, a person just like everybody else. I get all the same things. Right. You know? And, um, and then I was being told, no, that was not the case. And so, you know, and Prop 8 was so twisted. I, I marched on the street for the first time in West Hollywood over Prop 8. And, you know, you come to find out there's so much about the way that our propositions work in California specifically, which are inherently twisted and need to be reformed. But, you know, the, the amount of money that was funding this campaign was coming, you know, 90% out of the state of Utah. And then you also are getting messaging that is very confusing. You know, you voted yes on eight to not allow for marriage and no on Prop 8 if you wanted to allow marriage equality. And so it was this like very, and it's all done purposefully, right? Like you want to confuse a voter. You want to confuse the average person who's just in there like quickly or hasn't done their research. And so you know, it happened. And that was an awakening for me. And it, it made me an activist in a way that I just couldn't ever see coming. I, I just had not had a wake up call like that. And I think it was such an important moment for me because I, it changed everything. Mm. It really did. You never saw this coming. I so. never saw it coming. And, and it awakened something in me that was really major. Yeah. It, it was like, yeah, it changed everything I, for me. You know, I think when you, it's, I guess maybe it's, for anybody who's listening who's not gone through something where their rights to be a human, you know, are challenged or taken away or imposed on, there's, it's, it's sort of hard to understand, but I, you know, listening to like, sort of like the reactions that you had and, you know, thinking back to like, same thing, like the night that Obama was elected. I mean, I remember being at the rally and what that feeling was like. And yeah. same thing you said too, when, you know, Hillary lost, it was like this gut-wrenching feeling. And, and anytime where these, you know, rules or laws are being manipulated, where you're taking rights away from people, uh, queer people, I guess, especially, we see this reaction because I mean we can visually see it because people hit the streets and you're and like people protest and there's this emotional response that there is something that we have to do and you were driven to you know really get out there and you know make a difference so yeah. once all of this you know started to happen what was some of the the work that you were doing to really help you know overturn uh, Prop Eight Yeah so. Out of law school, I actually got my first job was working for the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which was the nonprofit funding the lawsuit against Prop 8. Mm. And it was a sort of incredible opportunity that I was given with very little experience out of law school. Um, I had met Chad Griffin, who was the who who founded the American Foundation for Equal Rights and later was the president of the Human Rights Campaign. And he um, I, I like met him at a a gala or a dinner or something. And I went up to him and I, I said, can I please just like be in your office intern, whatever I need to be a part of the case. And he had me come in and then I got a job mm -hmm. and we immediately were running this campaign and it really was run like a political campaign in the sense of we were, because when, you know, when, when prop eight passed, there were maybe four, I'm guessing, but there were only three or four States with marriage equality at the time, mm -hmm. the rest, there were a lot of like, 
separate amendments being trying trying to be passed. It's the same thing that we're dealing with now with trans rights mm-hmm. or, you know, a couple of years ago when it was the RIFRAs and there's all these like that we go through these cycles where, where we are being legislated against state by state and we have to go and do this piecemeal quilt of like fighting each of the state legislatures against legislating against queer people. And so at the time, the, the, the topic of interest was marriage. Mm-hmm. And it was that we were trying to get amend, we were trying to get all these amendments killed that were trying to legislate against allowing for marriage equality. And, you know, there were Massachusetts, I think, and a few others in the Northeast had marriage passed and that was it. Mm-hmm. And so working on this case was really incredible because you are on the one hand, fighting through the, le- the legal system, mm-hmm. trying to get make your way through, which we were doing. But then we're also working in the court of public opinion, you know, changing hearts and minds, really trying to communicate to people that we are not going to come in and ruin your hetero marriage, people. Like, we just want the same thing that you want. We want to start a family. We want to have kids. And we want it to be called the same thing. We don't want a... a Uh, whatever these uh, non-names are, like we want to be recognized as a marriage because it is a marriage. We go through the same struggles. We have children that are frustrating to us sometimes. We have, you know, we fight with our spouses. We, you know, have guests over and like to have dinner parties. Like we're doing all the same things that every married person is doing. We have ups and downs and, financial issues and struggles and, and, you know, fires and whatever. And so why do we have to be mm-hmm. called a domestic partnership or mm-hmm. a civil yeah. whatever? So, you know, it was very much that experience and it was cool to watch because it really happened mm-hmm. quickly, yeah. which has always, I think, been a really incredible blessing for me because it was my first job out of law school. You know, I was working for a nonprofit. I was working day and night. We were on call all the time because the minute that the court system would release a statement or something, we would have to like create a war room where we're getting out response and and working. And ultimately we, we worked on marriage through to the Supreme Court. I was on the steps of the Supreme Court the day that they were hearing arguments around the Prop A case. Mm. And it was incredible. It was yes, yeah. really magical. I, I love Justin. I love that you said that because what there's something for anyone who's listening to know that first of all, that to know that there's a little history here that's pretty recent that these things didn't just happen. People showed up, and because of people that did these things, we have a d- completely different world of opportunities for all of us to today. But also, what I wanted to really point out is is that what you got out of that experience that incredible feeling you got to have of being part of like that esteem, like, you know, there's that saying that, you know, in the military, you get up in the morning, you make your bed because you've already done one thing that makes you feel good that then propels you on to the next thing, into the next thing, into the next thing. What you also talked about was about like, you know, the importance of, of we're just like everybody else. But the other thing is, is that, is that we also love like everybody else, right? And, and there's yeah. dignity to that. And, and what I've learned over the last couple of years is, is that, there's no straight arrow. Like there's levels of like tolerance and love and just how the human mind works. Like we can't, like, I can't judge anybody. It just, just happens to be what we've, what we've been given and to work with in this world. You mentioned about turning, changing hearts and minds. And we have like this monkey brain, reptilian brain. That's a lower level thinking. And it, it's there to protect us from, from getting hurt. But when we've been barded with, with stories 
about people that these gays are coming for your families, that they're immoral. Well, if that's what your only experience has been from maybe the pulpit on Sunday morning, that becomes real to you. Right about the same time, this is 2008, 2009, your now husband was cast for a show called Modern Family, which actually has two dads with a family. It it just, to, to me, looking back upon it, like you talk about how quick things change. So now people on, you know, in the evening, they're seeing not just a gay family, they're seeing how it's all intricately woven in together. So you're working on this work. You see that show right about the same time. What was that feeling after you've had this wonderful feeling of acceleration of being on the steps? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I remember watching the pilot of Modern Family because I was still in law school at the time and my best friend, my best girlfriend who wasn't in law school, anyone who has never been to law school does not understand how miserably intense law school is. <laughs> so so the, the, you know, the, the thing is that the joke is that everyone's just like, come on, you're fine. Like you can go out to dinner. It's fine. It's like, no, I cannot do anything. I have got to study. Um, and, and my girlfriend ha- was like, you have to watch this show. And so it aired on a Wednesday. And then the next morning after she had been badgering me all night and I didn't watch it, I woke up and watched it. And I just was so blown away by the inclusion, the importance, the gravity through humor and just the presence, right? Like when when growing up, when I was young, I watched Will and Grace. That was my, that was sort of my only touch point to queer people. I didn't know queer people growing up really, at least that were out. There was maybe one or two and they made me uncomfortable because I didn't understand how they could be so free and I felt so not free. Mm. This was my, my safe space was watching Will and Grace. And I just knew having Modern Family and having that, like you say, the simplicity of a family unit, no matter how it looks, going through the same things like a child who's biting or, you know, uh, they get into a, a fight at school or, you know, locking, whatever, whatever the case may be, you know, you're, you're relating to families in a way that's so easy to connect. And I'll, I never have forgotten about how Mitt Romney, when he was campaigning for his presidency, whenever that was, had said his favorite TV show was Modern Family. Mm. And it was so powerful and like <laughs> strange that he said that because at the time he was not campaigning for equality <laughs> and still maybe isn't, but like is sadly the only, the best thing we have at the moment on that side. So like, you know, it's like we, we are watching the Republican candidate who's talking about binders full of women and like a very traditionalist in the way that marriage is structured and doesn't believe in marriage equality saying that modern family is his favorite TV show during his campaign. Mm. And, and so I think that's powerful because what it, shows is that whether he likes it or not, he's being influenced by this yeah. show. He's yeah. he's watching and relating and laughing and crying with yeah. humans mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he otherwise is saying is not a, a unit in the same way that a hetero marriage would be. So, you know, I just think that's really powerful. up a lot when on the show and also just kind of uh, comes up just a lot of times in conversation about these things is just the power of you know the media and the having characters that are queer show up you know in TV shows and you know thinking about it you know 10 years ago there weren't a lot 
there were, you know, it was really now today, it's a completely different story. It's like almost every show has, you know, someone who's LGBTQI in the show. But I guess thinking about it and thinking about that time that a lot of those shows, Modern Family included, were uh, ways that, you know, people, like Jeff said, maybe the only the only experience that they've had or that information that they had about those gay people did come from a church. Now they're coming into their living rooms on Thursday nights at eight o'clock. And I think when, you know, that happens, that really starts to like break down some of this misconception. And even though, you know, these are just TV shows, they're just characters, you know, people fall in love with, you know, TV shows. They fall in love with the characters. They fall in love with, you know, who they are. And then just to be able to see people in sort of their natural environment, you know, at home together as a couple with kids where it's not really about them being gay or lesbian or, you know, whatever it is, it's just being a human really helps sort of elevate that persona and that perception, which I mean, in some ways, I really think, you know, then you kind of like look at how the progression of marriage equality went. It was like, you know, one year it was like, my statistics are not correct, but I just remember like in general, it was like one year it was like 48% of Americans believe that there should be marriage equality. And then the next year it was like 55% of Mm Americans, you know, and it slowly increased. And I, I think in some ways, you know, the media, TV specifically, having queer characters on it really played a role in that, that acceptance for people. Yeah, for sure. It, it increased exponentially. I mean, it was astonishing how quickly. I mean, the, during the duration of Modern, we there was actually a season when we had made it to Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court ruling had come down, striking down Prop 8 and restoring marriage in California. Mm-hmm. We, and it was the Ninth Circuit. So they restored marriage in the in the whole of the Ninth Circuit. So it included like Nevada, whatever. And so California had that whole thing happening at the Supreme Court. And it was juxtaposed with the writers in the room at Modern Family actually writing Prop 8 into the storyline of Modern Family. So there's this episode of Modern where they are, uh, Mitch and Cam in the show, are going to get married in California because marriage was being restored in California. And they were on the phone with me, the writers, saying like, "Is it, how's it looking? Like, cause I was at the Supreme Court and I'm like, it's looking good. You know, I, <laughs> I can only be so sure, but like where it seems as if we're probably gonna, but it was just so crazy. Cause they're like, you know, writing these stories in real time. And then flip to the actual episode, which I haven't seen in ages, but there is a moment where they are watching, Mitch and Cam are watching the news and it's showing images, actual images from the, the, the Supreme Court, like the steps of the Supreme Court. And there's like American Foundation for Equal Rights flags. And there's HRC flags. And I'm like in that crowd, you know, I mean, they, I'm not featured in it, but it is just wild that our real life and his TV life sort of merged in that way. That was so incredible. That is amazing. I've never heard, I mean, obviously, why well, would have known this, but and how reality in that story then was able to usher in then a safety measure in people's minds, follow me for a second, maybe, is that they have Mitch and Cam now as a reference to know. So then like when Anthony and I, you know, buy, buy this house in Michigan, it's like, oh, they're just like Mitch and, you know, or not, but but that's okay. Like if that's what the, the way the mind works for reference point to know, or maybe it was like with Will and Grace earlier, you know, and now it's just being able now to see like, because, you know, with Will and Grace, when it came out, it wasn't, th- th- there was limitations to what they could show for intimacy between two men, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes people want to look back with like hindsight. So it's like, well, we had to get to where we get to with building blocks. And then because of that, then Mitch and Cam were able to have a love relationship. 
that uh, involved the family. That now it's like when I'm when we're with like family at like extended family over the holidays, that's their safe place for a reference point. They might bring up that show or like I watched this. And sometimes it might seem a little disingenuous, but that's okay. They're doing it from a place of love, right? That's just the way that yeah. they're able to connect the conversation. You guys, you and you and Jesse meet was around like 2010 or so. Yeah, we met in 2010. We met at the gym at Equinox in West Hollywood. We, I met him the day that I watched the pilot of Modern Family. So as I said before, I, I woke up from the, the premiere the night before I woke up. I decided I would watch it really briefly. Watched it. was so moved by this show and the, and the existence of it, really, considering how, how deeply I was entrenched in the work of, of equality at that moment in my mind. Like that was my single most dedication was working in this space. I wanted to do it. And then here was the show that I think was just so powerful in its simplicity of representation. And um, so anyway, I watched the show and I was feeling liberated and free and excited. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go do some squats. (laughs) I'm going to allow myself another hour of not studying. Like, you know, and when I tell you I was only studying, it really was only study. I never did anything else. So, you know, I went to the gym and there he was right next to me, like in, in the space. And it was so jarring because, you know, being... A Southern California person. I've been around. I've seen a lot of folks, unless it's like Britney or Gaga or like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I usually am just like nice to see, like I won't, I won't, whatever. And for some reason, because it was so instant and it had happened so in sync with me watching the episode and I had such a reaction to it, I just decided to say something. Mm. And so I turned to him and I was like, I just want to let you know I'm, I'm, so in awe of the episode of Modern and I can't wait to watch it. It's going to be so good for the community. Like, I appreciate it. Congratulations. I wish you guys the best. And he was like, what's your name? What do you do? Where do you live? (laughs) And I was like, oh boy, why is he engaging? Like, I just don't, I thought this was going to be a really brief interaction and we would go on our merry way. And so he was really warm and friendly. And so then I was like, is he gay in real life. Maybe he's hitting on me. I don't know. Just completely oblivious. And so we went, we went our separate ways and then we would run into each other at the gym multiple times. And eventually he asked me out. And so I went out with him, but it was a very strange experience because I went home and I like Googled him and I was like, Oh, he's openly gay. Okay. That makes sense. So then I like had to register that he was a real person because I was just talking to Mitch. You know what I mean? Like I, (laughs) I didn't know anything about this person. Um, and so it was, you know, we went on parallel journeys in a lot of ways. Like I worked with uh, Prop 8 um, on the same timeline that he worked on Merit, uh, on Modern Family. And, and I always told him, because he doesn't consider himself an activist. Mm. And, and I always get snappy with him about it because, you know, while I'm the one with the legalese or like the talking points, and I'm certainly more more well-versed and prepared to talk about like the legality of certain things. He is an activist. Activism takes so many different forms and just by being there and just by being on the show was a form of activism. And it was so important. It's people don't, it's not without the complaints about modern family too, you know, that they weren't affectionate enough or that they, whatever, like there's a million, because as we move forward as quickly as we have, now we have, shows that have gone 
10 times further than what Mitch and Cam could and did yeah. during that era. But it's just like, just their existence is so important, I yeah. think. That, you, and you, a form of activism. Yeah, you see, yeah. exactly, Justin. And, and sometimes love can be a radical thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and just how love shows up can just be radical, which is kind of crazy, honestly, when it's just when it's love. But uh, that I'm just curious. Uh, I would feel like that maybe it was a wasted opportunity if I didn't ask you. Like, I don't know what your spiritual like practice is, if you have anything or if you're agnostic or anything. Looking back, I mean, for us, I mean, the serendipity moment by moment of what took place with you just watched it, knowing how like protective you were with your time. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel like there was something like any serendipitous, anything bigger than you in that experience? Or you just showed up and the universe did its magic? What, any thoughts on that? Or Totally. I mean, I, I don't. I don't disagree with you. I think it was, and also that we had never exchanged information and our connection point was always the gym, which I've always, by the way, joked about, but I'm like, the fact that Equinox hasn't like thrown us a membership or been like (laughs) telling our love story. I'm like, Hey guys, hello. I'm like out here working. (laughs) I've been married for 11 years from someone I met in your gym, but I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, But yeah, it is wild that we, and we wouldn't go to the gym. Like it was all different time. It was spur- spontaneous parts of the day. Like sometimes it was the morning, sometimes it was the evening. There were like months in between during one of the times that I didn't see him. And we would always see each other at this place. And so I do think that, there, that it was meant to be for sure. Yeah. 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 It's wild. It's wild to think about. I, I used to be so embarrassed that we met at the gym because it felt so like, I don't know. It just felt so silly, you know, but now I'm, I embrace it because I think it's so, it's charming. You know, I also long for the days where people make connections in real life because of a million reasons. Like the fact that we've been locked down for (laughs) what feels like eternity. And I'm such like a people person and I love connecting with people. I love making chat and at a bar with a stranger. And I just feel like even prior to COVID, that that was dwindling away in in some ways, and so I, I love that we just connected in real life. IRL guys, IRL, it's good to be back, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for for taking us on that, that journey with, with with you. You know, we've got a lim- we've only had so much time, and you've done so many amazing things. And so, with without further ado, can we talk about uh, tie the knot? Yes, of course. So tie the knot was born. And out of an idea that Jesse, when Jesse and I were talking early on and he was telling me about his activism and how he felt like a fraud in some ways because he didn't think he was an activist and he felt uncomfortable and people called him that. And I was trying to explain to him that, you know, as we talked about, activism takes different forms and what you are doing is inherently activism. But one of the things that he always felt was everything is so serious all the time. You know, we go to human rights campaign galas and they are lots of talking points and big speeches. And, you know, that work is important too. And the work that HRC does is is so important and continues to be. But Jesse felt like there was room for a bit of humor. And how do you instill that into this work? And so we came up with this co- uh, concept where we created a line of bow ties And we started in 2013, all the proceeds from the sale of the bow ties went to support marriage equality. And we supported all the organizations on the, on the ground doing the work, ACLU, HRC, you know, all of the orgs that were marching quite literally. And so, um, we partnered with the tie bar out of Chicago, which I assume you guys being from Chicago, that's how you, that's how you know, Michael Corrigan. Oh yes. Yeah. And so it, it really was like, 
an incredibly beautiful creation. We were so proud of it. And um, it has outlasted longer than I could have imagined. We've raised over a million dollars. The Thai Bar has been an incredible partner for us. And we, you know, it was so tongue in cheek and it was exactly Jesse's voice. It was very much like, wear a bow tie, support equality. You know, it was just like, there was always a joke in it. And, and, you know, it felt authentic to him because it was. Yeah, so we, we formed this and we've done so many incredible things that we don't have time to talk about with Tyler Knott that I'm just so proud of because it's just like a little mom and pop shop. I mean, I'm literally sitting at my living room table managing this organization while also working on Prop 8 and while Jesse's also doing Modern Family and there's a million other things happening, but it just felt really fun to do because it was our creation together and it allowed for him a place for his activism that felt authentic Mm. and didn't feel like he was an imposter. So I think that was, that was really empowering for him to find his voice and footing as an activist. Well, and and I, you know, who doesn't love accessories and you guys have some (laughs) amazing accessories and the fact is boy who loved bow ties. I mean, come on. I mean, that's, there's just like, I love when things just like come together, like just multiple times right. in people's stories and yeah. just to see like just how beautiful and like when we allow, when we show up and we allow those things to happen, right? Like we have to get up out of bed and put ourselves in those places. So anyone who's listening right now, you can, you can, we'll have links uh, on Justin's profile where you can check out uh, some of the wonderful things that they've got right now for Tie the Knot. Justin, your activism has also served as forms as you being an executive producer as well, too. And you and uh, Jesse uh, were involved with an amazing film that's actually available for anyone right now who wants to go on uh, HBO Max to watch. That's a little bit, it's, it's, it's a serious subject, right? And the movie is Welcome to Chechnya, um, documentary by David France. The film centers, um, on real life purges that were taking place in 2017 in, in Chechnya. Just to, to maybe give some people at home a reference, I might butcher his name, um, Ramzam Kadyrov. Kadyrov. Kadyrov, yeah. sorry, thank you. That's um, right. Who is the head of the Chechen Republic. He was the gentleman when he was interviewed. He asked about the torture of gay men in his republic. And, he's, and he and he a straight face, almost of a laugh, and then a straight face said, nonsense, we don't have such people here. Hmm. And, and in that film, one of the activists or uh, people in the film talks about the, the only way to change this was for him, was for an actual victim who had been tortured to come public. What was it like being able to be part of this? And, and how did this come into to your guys' uh, world? Um, first of all, thanks for bringing up Welcome to Chechnya. I'm so proud of it. Have you, uh, did you guys get to watch it by chance? We have not seen the full film. Okay, no. you should watch it. It's, it's rough. The, first of all, the reason why Welcome to Chechnya is so important is because there are queer people being hunted every day in this world. And the fact that we are, <laughs> it's 2021 and here we are, and this is still happening. It's happening here in the United States where queer trans folks, trans people of color are being hunted and killed without any sort of uh, remorse. People are not getting caught. You know, they're being misgendered because they're they're being killed and then being called out by their dead names. There's so much happening right under our eyes and nose and it is devastating. And so I just want to call out like, while this is, it feels so far away, Chechnya, it really is a representation of what happens if we slip, let it slip away from us and we stop fighting is that we, what happens, what, what keeps it from getting worse here? What keeps it from happening in London and Paris and, you know, all these places where you feel like, no, 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 queer people are safe now. No, I mean, that isn't, 
quite obviously not the case. And so Welcome to Chechnya was and is a film about the purge in Chechnya, in Russia. It is actively happening. There are people being abducted as we speak, rounded up, tortured, being asked to give up their phones, their friends, any person that might be gay or queer. They are being handed back to their families in a state of complete abuse. And then their families are being told to kill them, make honor killings. This isn't just happening in Chechnya. It's happening in other Play far away places which feel far away, but we are all connected. <laughs> We're all humans, and if we don't stand up for each other, you know this this just will never stop. And so, I think it was just it felt like we had to do it. You know, it has the the fact that when you watch the film, you are actually in Chechnya with these these Russians who are so brave, and they have created this like web of saviors who basically rescue these people, change their identity, get them fake passports and export them to different places where they can be safe. But the reality is, at least in Russia's instance, there, like you said, Ramzan wants to cleanse the blood. Like he wants them, they, he doesn't want them to exist. And so it doesn't matter how far away they get. If they got here to New York, let's say, you know, they're, their Russia's reach doesn't stop at the borders of Russia. They really want to find these people and eliminate them. And so it's a huge, it's a huge problem, obviously. And we are faced with so many challenges as a community. And, you know, it's hard to stomach any of them and all of them at once without feeling like, how do I even get out of bed? It just feels endless. Right. And so you just, I'm just so proud of the film because it's it's most importantly w- waking people up mm. to what's going on, at least in Russia. Yeah. But now we have to remind people that, A, it feels far away, but it's not. We are them. They are us. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for our trans brothers and sisters here. Yep. You know, as, as a gay, cis, white man, it is our job to fight for our trans brothers and sisters as if we are them and they are us because they are. And, you know, it's just the inequalities are endless. And, and I hope that this film, that that this film and many others get made like it because we need to wake up and, and stand up. Thank you for spearheading projects like this, because again, I think it's one of the things where if we're not, seeing it, if it's not coming into our homes and we're not understanding it, that we sometimes forget these things. And and like you said, this is not just something that's happening in Chechnya. It's happening in other places in the world. It's happening in different countries in Africa, in Israel. It's happening all over the world. And like you said too, it's it's on the home front. There's, you know, there are trans people, trans women of color who are assaulted you know, on a daily basis, whether we're getting the information through news sources or not, we know that these things are happening. And you know, part of our our job, I think, as just human beings is standing up for, you know, what's right and standing up for people who may not have a voice. So being able to, you know, showcase these stories, I think, is, you know, a, a very important step in rallying and, you know, pulling people together uh, to be able to make, you know, some of those changes. It As you're, you know, talking about, you know, the head of the republic there, it's just reminiscent of other 
past dictators that have done atrocious things to to people. And I think, you know, something that you said earlier, you know, that, you know, we're queer people and like our, our rights are all set and everything else. And I think, you know, over the last couple of years with, you know, the former administration here in the States, I, I, we've seen some really uh, not so great things from other people from other parts of the country and their viewpoints on, you know, queer people, trans people. And, and I think it's just a reminder that, even though things are okay and the laws are passed and change has been made, it's still this constant, I don't want to say fight, but it's a constant engagement to keep our rights worth where they are. So, yeah. you know, and and like I said, projects like Welcome to Chechnya are needed in order to that moving. Yeah. So I just see an interview with with David France, with with actually the three of you, you, Jesse, and and David on um, with Variety. And he talked about as well that all the wonderful things that you've said and on top of that was that this is a film about love and strength inside of each one of us. What all three of us have been talking about is, is today, it's like, how do we respond? You know, like I can react, I can react in fear. We talked about that as like children, we can react in fear. But um, but we all have power with inside of each other, each, each, each one of us, right? And how we respond from that. And like the power that you have may be a little bit different than the power that I have, the power that your husband has. And, but when we all come together in, in love and service, like literally like, we, we're unstoppable, to be honest. Um, yeah. I think we 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 don't, we don't necessarily even have that that glass ceiling that we give ourselves continues to get smashed, and we become inspired and more capable of things we never even knew we were if we hadn't gotten out of bed that morning. Talking about getting out of bed in the morning, um, <laughs> a little different note. <laughs> I've heard we've heard a little bit of background noise from your home today. You you getting out of bed has probably uh, changed a little bit for you in the last year. Even during COVID, you weren't able to just to chill too much. Uh, in July, you welcomed a beautiful bundle of joy named Beckett. Yeah, it's been wild. I mean, having a child during a pandemic is, uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> no, it's been, it's been, it's just been so crazy. Cause you know, here we are, we're in this state of complete shock already because yeah. of the pandemic, you know, you, we're all going through this collective thing that none of us have, well, most of us have not <laughs> had to deal with in our lifetime. And then on top of it, we in July had to travel to Vegas to our surrogate in the middle of a pandemic in 120 degree temperatures when we were still very fresh on COVID in terms of like what our knowledge is and understanding of it. And they weren't allowing us into the hospital and they, you know, everything was just upside down. While we had originally planned to fly to Vegas, we drove, which was wild because driving back with an infant five and a half hours, whatever the drive is, is terrifying. But it all worked out and he's so sweet and lovely and wonderful. I mean, it's been it's been so great. It's just if I could have I, it's so funny because people say having a newborn during the pandemic was probably a gift because you're forced to be at home. And so I agree with that because Jesse is always working and he's been busy for 11 years and was planning even after Becky was born, he was supposed to be doing a play on Broadway, take me out. Mm -hmm. And so we were going to give birth with a month and a half left on his play schedule. And I was going to return back to LA with the baby and Jesse was going to return back to New York to finish his run. And, you know, just like every parent does, you just make it work, right? Like you just have to figure it out. And this has really forced us to be present, to be home, to um, not have distractions at all. So in many ways, it was the greatest gift. And of course, we're in a blessed position to say that, like we can not worry about having to find a job or whatever, because we 
are in a, a great position and just were able to take the time off and have a vacation. And we're really lucky in that way. But now yeah, here we are <laughs> and I'm just ready for it to be done. Yeah. I want to get back to work. I want to see people. I want to go have a lunch meeting. What Remember those? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I want to get back to the world. I'm really, really looking forward to it. I, and, I, and I know it feels as if it's sort of happening. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm also realistic about sort of like, you know, we, we still don't know. It's a little bit of this. Like we're just sort of... <laughs> Maybe. Uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, there's so... I think so many people are feeling that way, right? Like that they want to sort of, you know, get back to quote unquote normal or just kind of get back to that, you know, daily routine. The, the one thing that we definitely would want to say is, you know, congratulations. And for this also being your first Father's Day together, that's, uh, you know, definitely got to be exciting. We we actually went to Benihana on Mother's Day because we moved. We've just moved to the Valley. And I don't know if you boys have ever been to Benihana, but... I I, growing up, would go to Benihana a lot, yeah. and Jesse had never been, so I was like, "We're going to Benihana," <laughs> and we took Beckett, um, and and we went. It was Mother's Day, yeah. which I, we sort of forgot, but and it was like all these couples celebrating Mother's Day, and then this little gay couple in the corner <laughs> with, with their kid, with, which I thought was so funny. We were just giggling about it because we were like, "Why we're out to dinner on Mother's yeah. Day without a, without either of our mothers or whatever?" And it was just really sweet. It made me. Smile. <laughs> oh, my goodness. is fitting. <laughs> so, Beckett, I hope you knock it out of the park for Father's Day. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I know. Oh, man. Wow. Well, Justin, it has been such a joy to, to be able to spend some time with you. Thank you for being part of uh, Proud Out Loud and, and the work you've done with Tyler Knott, the Human Rights Campaign, uh, Welcome to Chechnya, and then just, you know, just being exactly who you are. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you. We look forward to seeing what lies ahead with you. And um, also, we're going like to we're, we're gonna have links for uh, Tyler Knott and then also Welcome to Chechnya as well, because people can still donate to both those causes. So, yes. Yeah. Thank you both. It's yeah. nice meeting you. Yeah. Same here. Thanks, so Thanks much. Justin. Looking back on Justin's story, you can't help but see the serendipity in his life. We want to thank him and Jesse for the work that they've done and continue to do to advance equality across the globe. To learn more about the projects Justin's working on, visit his profile page on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. To catch up on past episodes and learn more about our past guests, visit our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store and browse our online bookstore curated with our guests' recommended books. Thanks again for listening. And remember, be true, be you, and to talk out loud.